It's Friday, August 7th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. A new study looking at the movements of Americans during the pandemic shutdown orders shows that rich Americans stayed put while poor Americans increased their movements, presumably because they were essential workers and could not work from home. Matt Simon, science journalist at Wired, joins us for how your income could be a predictor of how well you can social distance. Next, Major League Baseball is getting serious with new protocols to prevent COVID-19 outbreaks among players and staff. Anyone found in violation of these new rules could be suspended for the remainder of the season. Face coverings are required at all times, and players are even discouraged from talking to or facing each other when eating or drinking together. Bob Nightingale, MLB columnist at USA Today Sports, joins us for more. Finally, as a result of the pandemic, Halloween could be canceled, or at least look very different than in the past. Many major theme parks have already canceled their Halloween events, and now, big questions remain about trick-or-treating and also how it could impact the costume and candy industries. Hugo Martin, business writer at the LA Times, joins us for how Halloween could be very different this year. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. First, pretty much everybody was staying home. But then as it wore on, you started to see this interesting trend where the rich folk were able to stay home much more than poor folk were. And there were a couple theories as to why this might be happening. One of them is that if you're working an essential job, it's more likely that you're earning a lower income. And if you have to get to that essential job, you're, of course, traveling more. Joining us now is Matt Simon, science journalist at Wired. Thanks for joining us, Matt. And thanks for having me. There was an interesting study done that was looking at anonymized cell phone location data into people's movements during the pandemic. And what they found out is your income is a pretty good predictor of how well you can socially distance. They found out that wealthier Americans during the pandemic really stayed put. They didn't have to go much of anywhere. And on the flip side of that, lower income Americans actually increased their movements because just a lot of them might have been essential workers, things like that, working in grocery stores, working in processing plants, things like that. So tell us a little bit about this study and what else they found out. It was the case before the pandemic hit that rich actually moved more. They can always afford to travel, that sort of thing. And the poor stayed closer to home. But when the pandemic hit and you saw the lockdown, at first, pretty much everybody was staying home. But then as it wore on, you started to see this interesting trend where the rich folk were able to stay home much more than poor folk were. And there were a couple theories as to why this might be happening. One of them is that if you're working an essential job, it's more likely that you're earning a lower income. And if you have to get to that essential job, you're, of course, traveling more. But those were kind of hand-wavy sorts of hypotheses. And this is for the first time putting data to that idea that, yes, in fact, we are seeing that the pandemic has had a disproportionate effect on how people are traveling based on their income in the United States. There was actually some U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. They found that Americans 25 and older with less than a high school diploma, just 5% of those people teleworked. And on the flip side of that, 54% of Americans with a bachelor's degree or more were able to work remotely. So, you know, if you have a great job, a good education more than likely you're going to be able to do some type of work from home thing, but not so on the other side. The other issue here is that the rich, because they have a good amount of money and savings, 
they can stockpile food and medicine. But if you're living paycheck to paycheck, you might have to go to the grocery store much more often because you go buy your stuff bit by bit as the money comes in. And then another factor here might be that the rich are actually able to order more delivery. So big hauls of Amazon goods and things like that. That has a direct effect on low-income earners who are processing those orders and delivering them. We know that the rates in African-American communities with COVID and Latin communities as well, they're getting the worst of the coronavirus, basically, compared to white Americans. So tell me a little bit how that broke down. Yeah, they really are. And I actually was able to speak to an activist at the Partnership for Southern Equity about this. And she had mentioned that you know 43% of essential workers are people of color. So then you have the sort of systemic racism issues and systemic inequalities when it comes to economics. As I mentioned before, exposing poor uh, low-income people to the coronavirus more than the rich are. So this gets a little bit more interesting when we think about being stuck at home when it comes to things like heat waves. We had a heat dome here in the United States a couple of weeks ago, and I actually spoke to the same activist for that. And she had mentioned that the low-income neighborhoods are actually structured in fundamentally different ways than high-income neighborhoods are. So the rich are in their McMansions in these great big green spaces in the suburbs, but low-income neighborhoods are potentially more urban. They have fewer trees, fewer parks. That can actually raise the temperature of that area. So what happens is the sun hits that area during the day. There are no trees to actually help absorb that energy. And actually that concrete all releases that heat at night. So what you have here is kind of these compounding factors on low-income folk because you have them being locked inside because of coronavirus when they don't have to travel to their essential jobs. So then you're exposing them to potential heat fatigue and things like that. So there are many different layers of the systemic inequality that is really being brought to the fore. The other big thing is going to come when we finally have a vaccine approved. Everybody kind of thinks that's the finish line, the goal line, but it's not really because it's going to take a lot of time and complex effort to distribute all of those vaccines. And that's going to be another thing. There's really not going to be enough to go around initially. Frontline healthcare workers are probably in line first to get it. But, you know, in these communities of color, and lower income communities, sometimes they might not be first in line for this. So the vaccine thing is going to be another big issue, but that's obviously after we get that approved. That's really the interesting utility of a study like this, where this data is coming from and showing that we can actually prove that these essential workers are having to travel more and exposing themselves to the coronavirus. Perhaps we should think about getting the vaccine to those communities first. That's especially true if we want our country to keep running. Again, these are essential services that are providing, in part, a lot of the services to the rich. So people think about, oh, this is just data to show us something for a lot of these kinds of studies. But this adds a very real utility, finally putting data to the fact that researchers were thinking, demographers were thinking, up until this point, of course, low-income folks have to be moving around more while the rich can hunker down. Now we have that definitive data. We can start to base public policy around it. And as you said, once the vaccine arrives, we're going to have very limited supplies of it as manufacturing ramps up. Maybe we need to send it to these communities first to keep them, first of all, safe from the coronavirus, but also to keep the economy from absolutely collapsing. Matt Simon, 
science journalist at Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. And thanks for having me. Something like this, as unfortunate as it is, actually probably resonates with uh, the general public in ways that hopefully sends, drives home the message that this is serious. Joining us now is Bob Nightingale, MLB columnist at USA Today Sports. Thanks for joining us, Bob. Sure, my pleasure. Thank you. Wanted to check back in on the baseball season so far. They're doing a shortened 60-game season, and it started off very rough. First off, the Miami Marlins had an outbreak of COVID-19. Then it was the St. Louis Cardinals that also had an outbreak. I think it was 33 members total between both teams that had gotten it. And what happened after that, there was games that were postponed. And really the whole season, just because it happened in the beginning, was called into question. MLB has now put out a memo with some new protocols in place, and they seem pretty strict. And they're saying that if people are not in compliance, they could get suspended for the rest of the season. There's a lot of stuff going on. So, Bob, help us walk through it. Yeah, you have to wear a face mask at all times, except for when you're in your own hotel room and on the field. Umpires are wearing it, but even in the clubhouse, dugout, you're wearing it. They don't want you to dug out. If you're not playing, get in the stands. If you want to have a bite to eat, eat in the stands if you can. If not, if you eat, don't talk at the same time. And when you're in the hotel, hey, you're going straight to your room, no stopping off at the hotel bar. No restaurant, nothing like that. There's going to be guys watching you. There's going to be a guy uh, in each clubhouse and two guys at the team hotel are going to be kind of uh, sitting in the lobby there for 16 hours a day. Part of it, you know, you mentioned the eating. If they're eating in the clubhouse or wherever they're at, they say don't talk while you're eating and don't even face each other. And for these guys that are teammates, they've been together for a long time, that's part of the camaraderie. And, you know, you're like trying to isolate them as much as possible. That's going to be a tough one. I think that's why they have the uh, monitors there. Two security agents at the hotel and one monitor in in each clubhouse. So, yeah, it's going to take getting used to for sure. But I think baseball says, hey, if you guys want to get through this season, this is the only way to do it. If you don't follow this, it's not going to work. The MLB did send out a memo about all of these new protocols, and they did address what happened to the Marlins and the Cardinals and why they postponed the games and kind of what would happen in the future if there was other outbreaks. What did they say about that? Yeah, just that they thought they were, uh, you know, in hindsight, they should not have let the uh, Marlins play that game against the Phillies. They learned that, hey, even though you're in the same field, one staff member got sick and nobody else did. So maybe they should have allowed them to play. But yeah, just being very, very cautious with those teams. And hey, if there's another outbreak like that, it's, it's going to shut down a uh, that team for another week again. But yeah, better be safe than sorry sort of thing. But they probably should have let the Phillies play in hindsight as well. What do we know so far about how members of the Marlins team possibly got it or even the Cardinals? I heard rumors that some of the Cardinals went to a, a, a casino and that's my, maybe where they got it. What do we know about that? Well, I think in the Marlins case, it was just simply violating protocol, being careless, as Derek Jeter said, where a few guys went out. At least two players, if not three players, went out. One guy visited one of the Atlanta Braves guy's house, a former teammate. Someone went out for coffee and clothes shopping. That sort of thing, which you can't do. In the Cardinals case, we still don't know. It looks like it happened in St. Louis, according to the Cardinals. They vehemently deny anything to do with the uh, casino. So it was just from an outside person. Maybe it was a family member. Who knows? But that's how that spread. But both those things spread wildly just on the team plane. Like if you have an infected guy in the plane, everybody's breathing that same air. So that's where it can get dangerous. 
what are they going to do as far as monitoring the teams when they're not at the clubhouse, you know, when they're at home, things like that, because those are part of the new protocols too. You can't go to any bars, lounges, malls, places where there's large groups. I'm sure they're not going to have monitors following them outside of the clubhouse and things like that and in hotels, but it's just going to be personal responsibility at that point, it seems. Absolutely. I mean, you're kind of at the mercy of the weakest link there. If one guy goes out, it can work for anybody. So no, you're absolutely right. Yeah. You can't follow a guy home and no one's going to be sitting outside a guy's house monitoring it, but they will monitor very closely when those teams are on the road. With such a short season, this has been my biggest curiosity. How does the scheduling work when they have to reschedule these games and postpone things and they got to try to catch up later? How does it happen, at least with these first few games that got postponed? Well, they're still going to try to get most of them in. I think they'd like to get at least 55 in. That's their minimum, I think. But like the St. Louis Cardinals, they missed a week of games. There's already 10 of schedule to make them all up. The same may be true with the Marlins. But, you know, worst comes to worst, you know, you play 55 games and not 60. And then you go by winning percentage, you know, sort of thing. Like maybe you won't have the same type of criteria as always, but go by winning percentage if the schedules are uneven. Just like it happened in 1981 with the player strike. Bob Nightingale, MLB columnist at USA Today Sports. Thank you very much for joining us. Sure, my pleasure. Thank you. This year, all the major theme parks here in Southern California have canceled their Halloween festivities. And some of the stores and the candy makers are saying, you know, we just don't know what it's going to look like this year because of uh, the pandemic. Joining us now is Hugo Martin, business writer at the L.A. Times. Thanks for joining us, Hugo. Yeah, thanks for having me. Halloween is one of my favorite holidays. I get together with my wife. We get together with friends. We love to go to all these theme parks that have their events you know in california here in in los angeles area we obviously have the halloween horror nights at universal studios not scary farm at knots and the queen mary has their dark harbor event you know i love those it kind of kicks off the halloween season and then throughout i love it costumes trick-or-treating the whole nine but with the pandemic the way it is everything has been kind of thrown for a loop a lot of these theme parks have already canceled their halloween events And there's just more questions after that. What's going to happen to the retailers like Spirit, the costume shops that really rely on this season to keep them afloat? Everything's been thrown into question now. So, Hugo, you wrote a little bit about how this could impact the holiday there. Tell us about it. You were mentioning all these Halloween festivities that theme parks have. And in the past, they've been just going bigger and bigger every year. I mean, they were breaking records. You would be waiting in line for hours, in some cases, to get in these mazes and to get in the rides. And the stores that sell the costumes, Spirit and Party City, you used to go back there to get costumes around the Halloween time. And it'd just be wall-to-wall with people and costumes all over the floor. So it's been a huge boost to the economy every year. And this year, all the major theme parks here in Southern California have canceled their Halloween festivities. And some of the stores and the candy makers are saying, you know, we just don't know what it's going to look like this year because of uh, the pandemic. I mean, it's unclear if people are going to be even trick-or-treating this year. I mean, it's definitely sad, but it's understandable, at least with these theme park festivities, you know, these dark cramped mazes. A lot of them are outdoors, but sometimes they're indoors. They're smoke machines, people breathing on you, screaming. These are all the things that we shouldn't be doing in close quarters with each other. So 
it makes sense. You did have a section in your article where you talked about Halloween spending. There's a lot of money attached to this. Run through some of those numbers. Last year, uh, based on a survey by the National Retail Federation, they estimated that Americans would spend $8.8 billion just on Halloween. And that was one of the third, I think it was the third highest in the 15 years that they've been doing the survey. Most of that money is spent on costumes and then a big chunk also on candy and, and decorations. So it's a huge holiday. It's second only to Christmas when it comes to spending in the U.S., so it's big, and it's been getting bigger and bigger every year. You say it's second only to Christmas. There was also a note in the article. Some people might not have a problem with it. I know a lot of people do, though, is that kind of slow creep of Christmas into Thanksgiving and beyond. And yeah. before that. They're saying that if Halloween is a bust, a lot of retailers might launch Christmas promotions early to try to offset that, to try to compensate. You know, we're just kind of laughing about these things, but that's another thing, that Christmas might come even earlier because Halloween could be a bust. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we all go to the stores and we see the like Halloween stuff or the Thanksgiving stuff. And we go, wait a minute, that's still like a month away or two exactly. months away. And now, as you say, if Halloween is a bust, we're going to see Christmas decorations and Christmas wrapping and all that stuff even earlier because the stores are going to try to make up for that loss. Back to candy for a moment. You know, candy sales obviously going on throughout the year, and they have other holidays associated with candy, but this is a big one for them. You spoke to someone at Hershey Company. Uh, what is their sense of this whole thing? They're still hoping that it'll be a pretty good year. They're hoping that people will buy candy just for themselves, even if there's no trick-or-treating. It's unclear what's going to happen with trick-or-treating. I did call the LA County Public Health Department, and I said, you know, what do you think? Are you guys going to have any suggestions on whether people should trick or treat. And they said, for now, they're waiting to do that. But they said, uh, be prepared to offer alternative ways to celebrate that minimize contact with non-household members, which, you know, my reading is they may not be too cool on walking door to door and knocking on people's doors around the neighborhood. So yeah, that's going to be interesting if public health officials say uh, trick or treating is not a safe thing to do. And that's another interesting one. You'll probably see a lot of candy bowls just there, you know, kind of help yourself candy bowls. But yeah. even in that sense, you know, the studies that they've done, the virus can live on surfaces and things for some time. It's not as much of a worry as being in a room with people breathing on you, but even still yeah. there, there's going to be a concern there. So it's just going to be a tough situation and, you know, we'll wait for that guidance, but already it seems like it might not be so well. The last question I had for you, Hugo, you spoke to a few people that love Halloween, obviously, and they're kind of just saying, it's not going to be the same. I'm probably just going to stay home this year. Like you said, you like to go to Universal Studios and Knott's Berry Farm, and I do too. And so I talked to some folks who do that on a regular basis, and they said they're just going to maybe stay home and, and watch scary movies all day. They're not going to basically, in their mind, cancel Halloween. They'll try to do it in some way that's safe and without going out uh, Probably no costume parties this year, but you can always stay at home and watch uh, horror movies and uh, celebrate that way. Hugo Martin, business writer at the LA Times. Thank you very much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright. 
and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.